This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. Who would have thought something so small could wreak so much havoc? Prior to COVID-19, you probably didn't think that a virus would cause this much global disruption. To discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the future of pandemics, with me today are two research epidemiologists, Professor Archie Clements and Professor Christopher Reed, both from Curtin University's Faculty of Health Sciences. Thank you very much for coming in today, Archie and Chris. You're welcome. Thanks, David. Archie, you would have been aware that a pandemic could cause this sort of global disruption. Why has it taken this long for a virus to impact the world to such a such a massive extent? Um, well, obviously there there have been pandemics happening over throughout the last hundred years. The last big one that was this disruptive was the the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. But there have been multiple pandemics since then. It's just that those pandemics have all been able to be contained or were not as um, didn't cause us such a high burden of, of illness and death. Um, there are a bunch of reasons why this pandemic is particularly bad. Um, first is the, the virus itself. It's a highly contagious virus, uh, and it's also a virus that um, in a small proportion of people can cause very serious illness. Um, apart from that, I think the world's changed over the last 100 years. Uh, we're more connected than we've ever been. Uh, air traffic has ex- expanded at an incredible rate. Uh, we travel far more than we did even even 10 years ago, and that's really facilitated the the spread of the virus. Um, um, on top of that, uh, you know there there are a number of issues around uh, how the how the global response to the pandemic was managed. Um, you know, a number of countries didn't really heed the World Health Organization uh, warnings that were put in place early in the early in the year. The uh, Director General of the WHO was very open and explicit and in pleading the countries to be prepared, and many countries ignored that, those warnings to their peril, and as a result, the epidemic in, in each country is, in each of those countries has been much worse than it needed to be. Archie, uh, I think your point about the, um, you know, the, the, the amount that the world currently moves and how viruses now can spread far beyond what we would have re- really thought uh, manageable. Uh, and, and this has been, I think, such a, well, on demonstration so much in this current uh, pandemic when it really in those very early days, the constant movement of people in and out of, uh, in and, in and out of, uh, of different airports has just saw this explode on the world stage. I can't think of anything that we've seen like this before. I think that's true. I think I think the uh, the, the amount of international travel, the, the international connectivity, um, the way that goods and services are, are traded, um, the, the mobility of the global workforce. We have people from China, for example, uh, working in 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 throughout the world in in Iran, Italy, uh, Africa. Um, so and that that is all all, all new. Um, but but also, um, I think what this this epidemic did was really expose a lack of preparedness. Countries weren't ready for uh, a pandemic like this, uh, other than a small number of countries that have invested quite heavily in pandemic preparedness for many years, Australia included. We know that COVID nineteen affects the respiratory system, but we're still trying to work out how it affects other parts of your body. Obviously, all of the parts are important. 
Uh, Chris, you're involved in a study that's investigating the potential long-term impacts of COVID-19. What are you hoping to reveal? Yeah, look, that, that's right, David. Um, as Archie indicated, uh, many people will be exposed to, to, to the virus. Many people uh, will be infected. Only a, Hopefully only a small, relatively small number will have very serious consequences. And so many people will be actually living with uh, having been exposed to COVID-19. And already, right in the early days, we saw some uh, suggestions that it may uh, actually be of, uh, of of impact to people with, with underlying chronic health conditions, particularly underlying cardiovascular disease, people with diabetes, uh, people with hypertension, etc. And so in the absence of any information, we felt it was really important to try to, to start gathering some information on long-term exposure uh, and and to to try to see whether we're able to determine uh, whether there are any increased risks associated with background uh, comorbid conditions such as, I say, such as heart disease. Uh, what's also important at the moment is that um, we're also interested in, in looking at the long-term impact of, of how the communities responded to, to managing COVID-19. Uh, and certainly colleagues working in the mental health space uh, are particularly interested in the impacts of, uh, for example, isolation, uh, the community strategies that have been implemented really right around the world and, and, and what the important sort of health implications may be uh, having been exposed to that type of um, uh, situation, something which we haven't been or we haven't seen uh, certainly in our, in our country before. How is Australia performing in terms of that response? Uh, well, in, in my view, Australia's performed extremely well. And as I mentioned earlier, we have over many decades trained our pandemic response workforce uh, and they've, uh, their skills have been honed through uh, investigating many small, invest small outbreaks over the years um, and um, in preparation for, for having to deal with a big pandemic. Um, I think we've performed well at multiple levels, certainly at the level of government. I think the... Uh, the putting aside of political differences and the creation of a national cabinet that has enabled uh, national coordination of the pandemic response has been very successful. Um, when you have a, a country that's a federation of multiple jurisdictions, you always face challenges in coordinating cross-boundary uh, health challenges, uh, responses to health challenges like that. And I think that this, this, uh, this approach the government's used has been very effective. We've seen fairly consistent messaging between the Commonwealth and the states. And in a pandemic, it's really important that you have strong leadership. Um, you need leadership that um, provides clear and consistent messaging, that makes decisions on the basis of evidence, uh, that's open and collaborative, uh, and that can inspire the trust of people. And I think that our, our, our government has been able to do that. Uh, I think in a, at a health system level, we, uh, we're, we have an incredibly strong health system, one of the strongest health systems in the world. And I think there were the certainly were glitches. I think there was a lot of anxiety and fear in the health system, um, but it did mobilise very quickly uh, in order to be able to handle a, a surge in cases that fortunately hasn't actually materialised. So, and, and then of course there's the, the public, and I think that the public has um, responded incredibly well. We have clearly got a lot of um, trust in this country, a lot of social cohesion. People heeded the warnings of the government. People exercised um, uh, good practice when it came to 
social distancing, personal hygiene, people stayed informed. So I think, with you know, I, I don't want to suggest that the situation in Australia has been perfect, but I do think it has been uh, been very good, and that that really has uh, been reflected in the numbers. We 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 have very few cases in Australia at the moment. It's certainly been one of the envies. Uh, I think uh, looking globally, Australia's response has been uh, it's been terrific. Uh, I think Archie also. Uh, I've heard some comments that uh, people would like to see this national uh, cabinet uh, stay. It seems to have been very, very effective in bringing in that cohesion, uh, bringing in consistent messages, uh, allowing a formulation of good policy in, in, in relation to managing uh, uh, this situation, but, but also allowing those sort of slight variations across you know, across states, in uh, yeah, depending on, uh, on on their individual situation. So it certainly has been something. I think I think people would like to see continue in some way or form. Yeah, I, I think you make a good point there about the um, the fact that each state and territory has different na natural advantages and disadvantages. Obviously, in Western Australia, we we have the advantage of of isolation, and we can use that to good effect in a pandemic. And you know, the other uh, regional and, and state border closures have been an important strategy. Uh, clearly, the international um, border closure is, is the key strategy. Um, and I mentioned evidence-based decision-making. Another thing that we have in this country is we have very good infectious disease modellers who are interne internationally connected, who collaborate globally, who have access to the world's best um, modellers in countries like the United Kingdom. And um, we, we we share knowledge and information, and that r directly feeds into into advice that goes to government. And you know, I think I think we 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 can be proud of the role that our scientists have played. Yeah, and it's been really really interesting to watch the uh, the way that the government has really taken on board the um, the expert advice, uh, and that's something that, uh, that that I think has been really well demonstrated. Um, the, the policies are being made on the basis of evidence, on the basis of, of, of forecasting and in response to, uh, to, to the situation at hand. So it's been a really, a really nice demonstration of how important that sort of evidence-based platforms to inform on policy and create good, you know, really good government uh, and good policy making at a time when the population really needs it. Uh, it, and I, I think we can all think of uh, examples elsewhere around the world but we're, where we're probably not seeing uh, that anywhere near to the extent that, that we've seen here in Australia. Why is it so difficult to create a vaccination for coronavirus? Uh, we weren't able to get vaccinations for SARS and MERS, um, yet we're able to quite rapidly deploy vaccinations in comparison for things like in influenza. Why, why is it so difficult to vaccinate against these sorts of viruses? Well, every virus is different and they interact with the human immune system in a different way. And it just so happens that the coronaviruses are, are viruses that um, interact with, um, well, they, they invade the upper respiratory tract is, is, is part of the issue. And the upper respiratory tract has a very different immune system to, for example, the lungs. Um, and it's very challenging to get vaccines that, that trigger the right part of the immune system in order to um, in order to respond to coronavirus infection. So, so that's part of the issue. Um, 
you know, given that we don't have a long history of developing coronavirus vaccines, there isn't that um, that body of scientific work that we can draw on rapidly, um, with, in, which is different to uh, influenza viruses, where, where uh, you know we see seasonal influenza epidemics every year. Uh, there's a global uh, structure put in place for sharing information in, in order to create uh, new vaccines for influenza every year. Uh, and it also happens that influenza uh, is 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 um, dealt with by parts of the immune system that are relatively straightforward in terms of vaccine development. So it, it's it's just it's, it's a combination of the virus itself, the way that it interacts with the immune system, and the fact that we don't have a long history and 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 body of scientific knowledge around the development of vaccines for this particular class of virus. And I think it's also important um, that the messaging around how long it actually may take uh, to develop uh, a, a vaccine for, for coronavirus and managing ex community expectations. I, I think that's also also pretty important. Um, you know, this is this is not um, going to be solved uh, immediately. This will take quite a long time because of the uh, the points that Archie's raised. And I think it's really important that. That in the absence of a vaccine, this is a very highly contagious um, uh, virus, and and therefore those strategies which are currently being recommended around containment uh, are probably likely to be with this for some time. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think um, you know I'm hopeful that we will have a vaccine in, in due course. I, I, I think. Uh, the predictions that it might take a year to eighteen months are, um, I would suggest, a minimum. Uh, and absolutely, the coronavirus is going to be with us for all of that time, and we can, we we can't we, we have to be vigilant. Uh, you know, we have to be prepared to go back into our social distancing and and other restrictions as and when needed. And we also have to expect that our borders are going to be closed for quite some time, uh, and that um, that there will be restrictions on travel, um, and um, that life won't return fully to normal for, for, for a number of years. There are quite a few unanswered questions when it comes to how this pandemic started. Will we, realistically, will we ever get a clear answer and have we actually been able to in the past? Well, in, in my opinion, we do have a pretty clear understanding of how the epidemic started. And I think there is a lot of uh, obfuscation and a lot of uh, politicisation of that particular issue, and I'm, I'm not a politician, so I, I, I don't pretend to uh, to know um, uh, how these issues should be dealt with from a political perspective. But um, it's very clear that uh, wildlife in parts of the world, particularly bats, carry many, many different types of coronavirus. It's very clear that um, as a result of greater human incursion into natural environments, greater fragmentation of natural environments, um, trade in wild animals, either for food or traditional medicine, increases exposure of humans to uh, the the variety of coronaviruses that wild animals carry. So that is the most plausible explanation. It's it's the, the one that all of the evidence points to, that this was a, a spillover from a wild, a natural wild host into the human population probably through the food chain, probably through uh, a live animal, um, live animals being present in wet markets in, in Wuhan province in China. There's, I, I don't think there's a lot of serious doubt that that's the case in the scientific community. I think any doubt around that is really, has really been generated through uh, political discourse, not through scientific um, argument.
Yeah, look, I certainly agree with that. Uh, and I think it's also important to, to note that this, these sorts of um, virus transmissions can happen and have happened, you know, right around the world. It, it's not just, you know, an issue about a, a particular country. You know, we've had our own, uh, you know, virus developed here in Australia when the Hendra virus was uh, transmitted from firstly, I think, bats to, to horses and, uh, and then eventually... Uh, with handling and, uh, and and close contact transmitted to humans, and and so I think there is really is a clear pathway about how this has actually started, um, and you know some of <laughs> some of the, um, uh, the 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 alternative hypotheses uh, I don't really believe have a a strong evidence base. Yeah, I think maybe a a, a better question might be how did the virus take off. Um, how did the virus move from being a relatively contained epidemic in one country to a global pandemic? And, mm. uh, you know, what responsibility does the, the, the governments around the world have for that? And I think um, th that for me is the real question. That, that's, you know, if we are to do a, 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 an investigation, and we will, the WHO investigates pandemics, every pandemic that happens, those will be the questions that will be asked. And, um, those are, you know, we need to learn from this pandemic um, because there will be another one. Um, the, the number of um, examples of pathogens spilling into the, over into the human population from animal populations uh, and triggering uh, epidemics and pandemics is growing very quickly. Uh, so there will be another one. It won't be in a hundred years' time. It'll be much sooner than that. And we need to learn from this so that we can manage it better in the future. And um, in order to learn from it, we need to as much as we can avoid politicisation and we need to um, go back to the science and we need to, um, uh, we need to look at the evidence. Uh, that, that preparedness that you mentioned earlier, Archie, I think is a really important issue. I mean, we, we've seen some of the countries that have been able to respond and have been able to you know, implement uh, uh, strategies have you know, have that level of preparedness and, and I think that is something that's going to come from the experience that's happening right around the world at the moment is the importance of, of, of having systems in place, knowing knowing what to do, when to do it, and and how to coordinate it. And I, and I think you know we've all learned, all learning, still learning um, as a result of this. But probably that will be the one one big step forward that we will make. Uh, right around the world is, is increasing that level of preparedness uh, for, as you say, uh, the next uh, pandemic outbreak whenever and wherever that may, uh, may occur. Do you think this pandemic is going to have a lasting impact on humanity and how we function as a society? Are we going to be more conscious about things like hygiene and personal space, for example, or perhaps more wary about travel? I'll let Chris answer that one first. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, look, I, I, I think it will have. Um, it certainly, probably, had the biggest, uh, the biggest impact that, that certainly we've seen on in our lifetime. Um, with, with, without a, uh, a shadow of doubt, its impact on the economy is, uh, it, it, I think, is yet to really be um, uh, to be clear. But but we do know that it's had a huge. Uh, and it is having a huge impact on the economy, um, I, I, and I think those those very basic uh, issues around good personal hygiene, personal space, etc., 
I think they probably will be with us for a, for a bit longer. But one of the things I did want to just sort of touch on uh, the effect of the, of the virus is, well, an interesting thing we've seen, uh, you know, in the um, in the hospital sector uh, uh, since this pandemic uh, has has uh, occurred in, um, and particularly here in Australia, we've seen we've seen a dramatic drop off of people. Uh, actually attending for their routine health care for uh, for the management of, uh, of of their chronic health conditions that in itself is also going to have uh, a major impact not only now but also on you know future rates of diseases um, cardiology departments around the country have have uh, literally been empty and it's not because people aren't having heart attacks it's uh, and, and are suffering from cardiovascular disease it's because they're not actually uh, they're a little bit nervous about getting out and getting support and getting treatment for it um, and so I think we are going to see a lasting effect how expensive that'll be. Uh, we don't know yet, and that's also why it's important to actually ensure that we do have uh, a good handle on the long-term uh, implications, particularly for for those people who may be more at high, more at high risk, those people with chronic health conditions, uh, because it is going to have an impact not just now, but it's likely to be continued uh, certainly for a number of years. Yeah, I, I agree with Chris that those are the types of impacts that we're likely to see. And I mean, I work in infectious diseases, and if you look at the um, disease tuberculosis, it tends to be spread in households. And if you have uh, people uh, restricted to the home, uh, you're actually more likely to see transmission of, um, of virus of, of infections like tuberculosis, a bacterial infection that's spread um, also through um, um, uh, through through the air, through um, you know coughing and 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 and, and close physical proximity, uh, and that's like like cardiovascular disease in a sense. It's a disease that doesn't um, present itself immediately. It presents itself um, in, in down the line in, in in a number of years due to the the long latency of a period of the infection, and so we may see negative health consequences that are not directly related to coronavirus but are indirectly related for a number of years. So I actually think that's probably one of the areas where we will see a long-term uh, long impact. I'm not convinced that we will see significant social change uh, or behavioural change. Behaviour is incredibly difficult to change. Um, if anyone knew how to um, create sustainable behaviour change uh, in response to a public health problem, they would probably win the Nobel Prize because um, uh, because it's so difficult to do. So um, yes, whilst we, we may have economic consequences that in themselves could uh, lead to, to to health consequences, a lot of diseases around the world are, uh, are made worse by, by poverty um, and poverty is likely to, to grow as a result of the economic disruption. Um, I'm not 100% convinced that we will actually see human behaviour change in a sustainable way. I think we'll leave it there then. Thank you very much, Archie and Chris, for coming and sharing your knowledge on this topic. You're welcome. Thanks, David. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you have any questions about today's topic, get in touch by following the links in our show notes. Bye for now.